0: child, a young baby, passed away young, uh, years ago, two years ago, three years years ago, and uh, today is her birthday, okay, so therefore the class is dedicated for that neshama, and the name is Brinda Rivka Reisel. And this is this is an option which people have is that when we do good deeds, we do Torah mitzvahs, we could dedicate it for for the sake, for the merit of, so, of souls, and it's beneficial. This is one of the reasons that there is yiska and the Shoshana, because that could be beneficial for the souls. yom <laughs> kippur. Okay. We're going to start with uh, the short—I uh, don't know if it's called it story or not—but something like a story. This is in uh, the '60s. This is in the '60s, and uh, there was a letter which came from Avraham Avigdor in the Israeli Council of Warsaw. And in this letter there was a request to find out if Shmuel Gross, who's called Munya, is he really a chabadnik? Is he really a Labavichan? Or he's just faking? That was what the Israeli intelligence community got this message that they should find out who Shmuel Gross is. He was called Mulian. and uh, he's a Gingy. You know what a Gingy is? No. Red red hair? Red hair, red head, red beard, Gingy. Oh. And yes. What's his name? This this person called Shmuel Gross, (laughs) and his original name was Prus and more information, and uh, the intelligence community had to figure out who this person really was. And after doing research, they found out that in fact he was a Chabadnik. He was an authentic Lubavitchim. So then the one in charge of the Israeli Council in Warsaw, he breathed in relief. Okay. But then he decided... To put one final test to the Shmuel Gross <laughs> to really know if he's a Chabadnik. So, next time Shmuel Gross comes to the Israeli council, Tavram Aviron, he asks, he tells him, I have regards from Brooklyn. You know what that means? I have regards from Brooklyn? That's, <laughs> so Brooklyn? Already. Already. Right, that's right. That was like supposed to be self understood. I have regards from Brooklyn. When he said that, The eyes of this Shmuel Pus sparked up, and Mr. Avidor calmed down. Now he knew he was a real Hamadik. Who else would understand what it means, regards from Brooklyn, without any names, without any other information? So now he knew for sure that he wasn't some provocateur or someone. And he says, if that's the case, this is Mr. Avidar speaking to Shmuel of Shmuel in Warsaw in the 60s. He says, I'm going to turn the radio. It should be loud, and then we'll start talking. This is what they did because they were always worried that they had tape recorders hidden. So whenever they really wanted to discuss something private, they would turn on the radio and they would start talking. Now, this is Shmuel Pus. He's the one that they were doing research to find out if he's really a and this is Mr. Avidal who was in Warsaw, in the Israeli council, asking for the information. And this picture, these pictures are apparently recent ones. But in the 60s, they both look different. Now, this Mr., this the Shmuel Puss, this happens to be my great uncle. Oh. That's why I'm telling you this, this story. In other words, my mother's father, brother is Shmuel Prus. Now, my mother's father, my grandfather, he passed away young. During the war he passed away. His name was Chaim Schneel Zalman. And I'm named after him. And this is his brother. Okay. Now, this Shmuel Prus, uh, he had uh, left Russia at that time and uh, this Israeli council person Avram Avidar, he wanted to have information and we'll soon see more about this now Shemul Puz continues and he says that Mr. Avidar that's this fellow he and I were friends but one of the important uh, jobs of the Israeli council it in, in Warsaw was to get information about different people in Russia. And when it came to this sensitive, super sensitive issue, Mr. Avito did not trust his instinct that this was an authentic chassid. That's why he turned to the Israeli intelligence. Now, Avram Avedo continues and he says that Uh, when you knew someone was a Chabadnik, you knew that you had good information that you could trust, and it would be secure. But I first had to make sure that he was a Chabadnik. Now, this began shortly after Mr. Avidar began doing work in the Israeli council in Warsaw. And when they met, in other words, Mr. Avidar met the B'Shemul Plus, it was a connection of two different worlds. Avido was 21 when he escaped Poland several months before World War II began. He and several others uh, crossed the border of Poland, and uh, they went on to England, and eventually they went to Israel. 20 years. After he escaped Poland, he returned to Poland. And this time he returned as the chief Israeli consulate in, in Warsaw. And Avvita says this was not the same Poland which I had left. This was a devastated, destroyed Poland. Most Jews were destroyed in, in the Holocaust. Those that remained those that remained alive, survivors of the war uh, were uh, or those who managed to escape Russia and in Poland there were thousands that, there were thousands of survivors around and our job was to help the Jews, the survivors financially and morally. And we had a, a very significant job to uh, help the Jews in Poland, and to encourage aliyah to the Holy Land. Now, many of the Jews who came from Russia to Poland uh, were mixed up. When they were in Russia, they had one objective. They wanted to leave Russia. Once they left, it didn't matter where they would go. Some wanted to go immediately to the Holy Land. Some wanted to stay in Poland and begin a new life. But there was one common thread amongst all those Jews. They all loved to com- come to the council, to the consulate in Warsaw, not only to be registered, but to, uh, to exchange information about different housing in Warsaw, rights for uh, immigrants, and so on. Yeah, it wasn't so much for records, it was records also, but they, it, was, it was this was after the war and many people needed help. They needed direction, where to go, what to do.
1: Like so Right. like a club, like a club.
0: <laughs> Now officially the council wasn't supposed to be there. Officially it was representing the government. But, in fact, uh, those were the activities they were doing. Okay, now, uh, the way they helped the refugees, the survivors, anyone who arrived to the consulate and registered was not interrogated, and he immediately received a certain amount of money, a place to sleep. The first days, the person came to Poland. No, someone escaped from Russia, came to Poland, they registered, so they would immediately give him money and help them for at least several days. Uh, the next step, they tried to get helpers from amongst the refugees from Russia. The same, they tried to figure out what kind of person he was. And uh, when we saw he was capable, we would use him to uh, organize help for, for the refugees. Many of the Jews who left Russia had to wait months and more than that, until they would be able to go leave to another place. And uh, we wanted they should feel Jewish, so we established certain shuls, certain synagogues in several places in Poland. We even established some schools, some Jewish schools. And there was no doubt in those days that no organization would be able to set up uh, schools and shuls Uh, except for the Israeli consulate, which is what they were doing. And there was another part of their activities, which was very important. They tried to piece together any possible information about the status of the Jews in Russia. Because Israel had a consulate in uh, Moscow, and uh, it was very dangerous operations in Moscow because uh, everything was full of secret police, Russian secret police. And we had to find out who were the Jews in Russia that we could trust and who were the secret police of the KGB. So when they would leave Russia and come to Warsaw, the Israeli Council of Warsaw would try to find out who were the real Jews and who were just faking it which was very common in those days. In those days, when you walked into, when you walked into any synagogue, the gabi, the rabbi or the gabbai the one in charge, they were all agents of the KGB. And they marked down anyone who came. So the Israeli consulate in Russia was trying to help the Jews. But they knew that the Russians were sending KGB, who looked masquerading as Jews, and trying to infiltrate. So they had to find out who are the ones we could trust. So, when the Jews would come to Warsaw, if they would be able to find a Jew they could trust, they would get information about who the Jews were in Moscow. Then the Israeli consulate in Warsaw would deliver that information to Moscow. Are you catching all this? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Not that complicated. (laughs) Okay. Okay, so one day, a Jew walks into the Israeli consulate in Warsaw. And this, this is a gingy. A gingy comes in with a beard. And he has a package. He has a package, uh, something in a package. Now, as usual, I ask him his name. And he spoke Yiddish, mixed with Russian. And he said, Shmuel gloves. And I was looking at him. And I saw that he's coming straight from Shul, straight from synagogue. And I didn't know what he has in his bag. But I knew it was something that had to have talus and tefillin, Talus and tefillin, right? Okay. Now I tried to figure out what's the situation. He didn't speak too much. He just told me in short that he lives in a place called Wapsach that's some town in Poland. Wapsach. With his wife. Two sons. And he's waiting to leave He's waiting to leave uh, Poland. He also told me that he has an additional son in Russia. Uh, By the way, this additional son is now a shliach in Boston. His name is Chaim Pus. Did you hear that? (laughs) Mrs. Lester comes from there. She knows who She probably knows. I mean, yes, she knows who he is. But she doesn't know this, this link. OK. OK. Uh, during the entire discussion, this Mulya, that's, that's his nickname, Mulya, this person, Shmuel Phos, he never let his eyes go away from his bag. His eyes were also always on the bag. And he held it with some type of stubbornness and it was obvious that there was something in there that was very precious to him. And I, Mr. Arvidar says, I built up uh, courage, and I asked him, what do you have in this package? And he said, talith and tefillin. That was his answer, talith and tefillin. OK, so I gave him. It, did, it still didn't explain why I was looking at it all the time, but you'll soon see. Before he left, I gave him some money, as I give every June. And I told them, before you, next time you come to Warsaw, come, come back. And all this was just a standard procedure. We always invited people to come back to find out who comes just for money and who wants to maintain the connection. And we kept on talking. But my uh, curiosity about the thousand fill-in was, uh, my curiosity was aroused. And before he left the room, I asked him again, can I see your talus? So he took out the talus, and I saw there was a special talus. The material was a hard wool, very thin, hard and thin, and it was done by hand. At a later time, after we became friends, they asked him if he could give me the talus, And I'll exchange him with another talus, because we had many talases. Because when Jews would need talus, we would provide it for them. And I wanted to send the talus, you missed a part, uh, this Rabbi Shmuel Puss. at that point, when he was in Poland, he was there with two sons, and one son was still in Russia. That one son that was still in Russia is now the Shlia from Boston. His oh, name is Kain Puss. Oh, I know
1: him. Okay, that's his son.
0: So now you see the connection. <laughs> <Huh>? <laughs> How people got. <laughs> he had to leave Russian, so, <laughs> so, you could be a, yeah. so we could have a class there.
1: So this Kain Puss is a cousin. Well, yeah, yeah second cousin. cousin.
0: He's my mother's cousin. Yeah, my mother's first cousin. Okay. So I wanted to take the talus from mm-hmm. him and send it to a museum. In, in, uh, now, to solve in the Holy Land, we had a special museum for, for surviving talasim and tefillin from the Holocaust. And at that time, you could find many such articles in Poland. You could go to a store, and when they saw that you were a Jew, they could, uh, they could uh, ask you, do you want to buy a part of a safe hotel? And I wanted to get his talis because I saw it was special. But I saw that Muya didn't want to give away his talis. On one hand, he was connected. And on the other hand, he wanted it very much, so he was like in a dilemma. And Shmuel says, I was very attached to this talus because this was the talus of my brother. And I called it Zalman's Talus. That's my grandfather. In other words, his brother, Zalman, my grandfather, he had died years before, during the war. He died from starvation in the war. And this talus, the brother of Shmuel, he kept this talus. And it was, like, very emotional for him. And he said, I'm ready to give you the talus if you give me a Chabad talus, which I didn't have. So he held on to the talus. And what was so special about this talus, Rabbi says this talus was a Mesiras. What does Mesiras Nefesh mean? Yeah, Mesiras means giving away the soul for God. In In those days, to have a talus, was dangerous back in communist Russia in the times of Stalin. So this talus went through a lot of OK, as time progressed, the uh, Munia of Shulapos became friendlier. They became friendlier and friendlier. And uh, he told them about what was going on in Russia. And um, in this town where the Mulya lived, he tried to revive Judaism in that town, in Poland. Okay, one time when, when the Shmuel came to the council, I asked him, Do you need anything? So he stopped a second and he said, I need a mikveh. Because when he was in Poland, there was no mikveh. So he wanted to build a mikveh. He said it would be a big mitzvah, a tremendous mitzvah if you could help us build a mikvah in Vapshak. That was the town where Rav was. And I immediately gave him the money for the mikvah. And he said, if you need more, I'll give you more. And Rav was a very straight person. And after a while, he came back with change. He returned the change to me. He said he had enough money plus extra, so he gave it back. From all the thousands of people that I've met in that time, he was the only person that came back and wanted mikveh and gave back change. Okay, I mean, it keeps on saying different things. One of the interesting things was, at that point, Rav Shmuel developed a connection with many high officials in the Israeli government especially in the intelligence community. And this is something which I didn't know. For years, they would visit him in his house. To visit him on Yom Kippur, on Purim, they would visit him for years and years. And I mean, I knew him a lot. I saw him a lot of times. I spoke a lot of times. He's a lot of that. But uh, this is something which he kept secret. He didn't tell anyone such a thing. So
1: you to read about it.
0: Right, right. This uh, this magazine is called Kfah Abad, okay. which, by the way, has now an English part also. Kvachabad Chabad has an English part also. It's interesting. It's, get, it's getting more and more interesting. Huh? No, this is not in English. No. no. The Hebrew is just like 60, 50 pages. English is 10. Right. OK. We'll stack over here. Why are we not <coughs> well, the main thing they were interested in is later on there was He, he went. This person went to the Rebbe,
1: so
0: and he went to the Rebbe, okay. and it continues telling about the experience he had in But well, we'll leave that maybe for a different time. It's, uh, it's a class. Because very often they have no, It's different people, the experiences they went through.
1: <coughs> Back
0: and right. I mean, it's, it's like something which uh, tens of thousands of people at Yechidus and most people don't know what transpired. So they are doing a, a, a research trying to find out the different people and what happened. And it's just amazing the different things. The different people went to the that but, and their impressions and their experiences just are just very amazing. OK, today's class is going to be about a certain part of the prayer of Rosh Hashanah, which I'm going to read for you. And uh, I found one extra copy, so you could take a look at it, uh, anyone who wants. Okay, it's on page 135, the third line. Third line of of 135. This is the special Rosh Hashanah. Yeah, this is Rosh Hashanah, right. Now, this is a prayer, this is part of the Musat prayer, and in Hebrew the words read, Zehayyoyim tchilas maasecha, zekorim leyoyim rishon. Which, it, which means, This is the day which is the beginning of your work, a remembrance of the first day. Okay, we're talking about Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is called the beginning of your work. How is Rosh Hashanah the beginning of your work? Now the verse continues because it is a decree for Yisrael a day of judgment for the God of Jacob that's a continuation now the verse is saying that this day, the day of Rosh Hashanah is the beginning of your work, which means the beginning of creation but if we think about it Rosh Hashanah is not the beginning of creation Rosh Hashanah is not the beginning of creation, when was the beginning of creation? <laughs> that's right, what's today? so in three days we're now in the month of Elul that's the name of the month the next month is Tishrei the first day of the next month is Rosh Hashanah now the creation of the world did not take place on Rosh Hashanah rather it took place on the 25th day of Elul which is coming up in three days Okay, Rosh Hashanah is the sixth day of creation The day that Adam HaRishin was created. So Rosh Hashanah is not the beginning of creation. Rather, Rosh Hashanah is celebrating a birthday. The birthday of Adam HaRishin. And by extension, the birthday of all of us. The birthday of mankind. All of our birthdays are in Rosh Hashanah. So So Rosh Hashanah we're supposed to sing happy birthday. It's not the creation of the world. It's the birthday of Adam. And yet, That's not what it says over here. Here it says, this is the day. The beginning of your work, the beginning of creation. When in fact, it's not the beginning of creation. It's the sixth day of creation. Now, the simple explanation of this is, when you build a house, you build a house, it takes time from the time you begin building until the building is completed. After it's complete, you move into the house. If someone would ask you, when is the beginning of the house? So you have two options. One way is the beginning of the house when you began building it. Maybe that's what you mean. Or, no, the beginning last means when could you move in? Most people would tell you the beginning of the house is when I could move in because that's the objective of the house. It might take months of labor to build a house. But the objective of the house is after all that labor is completed, and you can move in. (coughs) And this is what Rosh Hashanah is. Rosh Hashanah is the completion of creation. Creation took six days. The sixth day is the completion of creation. So when we speak about the beginning of the world, the beginning of the world is on Rosh Hashanah, because that's when the building is completed, and the objective is met. In other words, the objective of creation is man. Mankind is the objective of creation. And when you have the objective, that's when the creation is completed. That's why we say this is the beginning of your work. This is the beginning of the world, the work of the world, because this is when it's completed. This is when you have the objective. Same day.
1: Right. she's an
0: extension of other Alisha so what, what you're saying is um,
1: like, like the analogy with the house that Rosh um, Hashanah is like moving into the house and starting the work of making a household so
0: to speak right, now you can live in a house yes. now Absolutely. you have a house to or live in
1: the house and the family and whatever has to be done that's right. that's right, making, that's you know, right that's right that's right. That's right. It's, so it's, a, it's a strange, you know, thought, you know, <laughs>
0: to compare the two. Yeah, to right. To
1: make that little space, to think of that little space. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Yeah.
0: Okay. Now the next step is what is the purpose of creation? And how does Odom achieve that purpose? Now, the purpose of creation is to get the world to recognize the malchus of Hashem. Malchus means, comes from the word melech, melech is king, to recognize the sovereignty of God. That's the purpose of creation. And that's why the very first day Odom was created... What was his very first activity? No, that came later. That came later. His very first... No, there was something which came before that. The very first activity is described in Psalms, in Tehillim, that Adam Elishan gathered all of creation, and he told them, let us bow down to God and serve him. That was his very first activity. So his first activity was fulfilling the objective of creation. That creation should recognize the creator. We should recognize the mouth was the sovereignty of God. And
1: what is it that he gathered all creation?
0: He gathered creation and he told them, let us bow down to God, our maker, and so on. You can look it up. I think it's in chapter 96 in Psalms. Okay. That's why on Rosh Hashanah we have a theme in our prayers. A theme which many people don't appreciate. If you go over to uh, someone in Borough Park, in Muncie, in Jerusalem, and you pose a simple question. What's Rosh Hashanah? 90% 90% of the answers will be Rosh Hashanah is a day of judgment. Rosh Hashanah is a day when God judges us, which is true. It is a day of judgment. I asked this question to someone in Jerusalem, um, and this fellow says, Rosh Hashanah, he thought for a minute, and he said, Rosh Hashanah is a day of revenge. God takes revenge on mankind, which of course is ridiculous. But that's a minority. But the average person will say it's a day of judgment. That's Rosh Hashanah. But in fact, that this is not the theme of Rosh Hashanah. The theme of Rosh Hashanah is Malchus, the sovereignty of God. We establish God as king. And that's why when we go through our prayers in Rosh Hashanah, we hardly find a statement that Rosh Hashanah is a day of judgment. There is one prayer, which is called Unasana Toikev, it's one paragraph, where we explicitly discuss that it's a day of judgment. Unasana Toikev. It's a very famous prayer. The word Unasana means you give take of strength. In the words it means. And this prayer we say who's going to live, who's going to die, who'll be rich, who'll be poor, who'll be healthy, and so on. This... No, 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 different words completely. Tokev means blow it. So there is one paragraph where we explicitly discuss Rosh Hashanah as a day of judgment. But other than that, we'll we'll have a difficult time locating in our prayers the fact that Rosh Hashanah is a day of judgment. What will be apparent in our prayers, time and again, is that Rosh Hashanah is a day of sovereignty of God where we establish God as king. It's a day of coronation of the king. God is established as king for ourselves and for all of the world. And this is something which we mention time and again dozens of times in our prayers because this is the central theme of Rosh Hashanah, to establish the sovereignty of God. Can
1: I ask a
0: question? Soon. Okay, we'll soon have questions. Now, what is Rosh Hashanah? Rosh Hashanah is celebrating the birthday of Adam. What is Adam? Adam has a purpose. The purpose he did on the first day, that the world should accept the sovereignty of God. So on Rosh Hashanah, we do the same thing as Adam and We have to establish God as our king and as the king of the world. Now, in order to understand this deeper and better, Getting back to the original verse we began, the words began, Ze Tchilas Maasecha. Ze this is the day, the beginning of your work. Okay? Let's see if you could follow the words again. Ze, what's the next word? Hayoy. Hayoy, continue. Tchilas Maasecha. Okay, what's the first word? Ze. Okay, what does the word ze mean? Yes. This. Now, let's take the word zeh out of this verse and let's see if it makes sense. Okay. Hayyayin, continue. Chilas, masecha. Today is the beginning of your work. Period. Isn't that a clear statement? <laughs> Yet we add the word zeh. This is the day. And if you wouldn't have the word zeh, which day would we be speaking about? You're saying hayyayin, the day. Hayyim with a hey, the day. We know which day we're talking about. Yet we add the word zeh. Now, the significance of this is a this very significant word. It's very subtle, it's very significant. The more subtle, the more significant.
1: <laughs>
0: okay, in order to appreciate this, this word zeb, the sages tell us that Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu, his prophecy was different than the other prophets. The other prophets When they prophesied, they ordinarily began the prophecy with introductory words. The introductory words were, such says God. And then they would continue saying what God wants. That's the opening statement. And the sages say, Moshe Rabbeinu, not only did he begin prophecies with the word, but he also began prophecies with the word zeh. Ze had Hashem. This is the thing that Hashem commanded. So Moses was different because his prophecies began with the word zeh. Now, what is the significance of this subtle change? Whether you begin koy omar Hashem, such says God, say zeh. This is what God wants. The difference is in the degree of revelation. In the degree of the reality of the revelation. When you say, such God says, it might be very distant. When you say, this. whenever you say the word you have to be able to point with your finger. If you can't point with your finger, you can't say that. That means, this is it. I'm pointing with my finger. When Moses prophesied, he said, this is what God wants. He was able to pinpoint and show it to everyone, which is a higher degree of prophecy than koy of Hashem, than the other prophets. Koi means such. Such, God says. When you say koi, you can't point with your finger. When you say point with your finger. Which is why we find that during kiri during the splitting of the sea, the Jewish people they praised God and they said, Zekeli van Veil. They said, this is my God and I will beautify him. So notice which word they said. They said, Kale. this is my God. Please. They pointed with their finger. And that's why we see that the sages tell us, the sages tell us that the Jewish people, when the sea split, the Jewish people experienced a higher degree of prophecy than the greatest prophets. It says that even a maidservant by the sea went through a higher experience than Isaiah, Jeremiah, and so on, the greatest of the prophets. How do the sages know that? Because it says, van veyon. If the Jewish people pointed with their fingers, Ze, this is a tremendous revelation where you could point. This surpasses the prophecy of the prophets when they said q. Now when was the let's go back to the creation of the world. When was the world created? Which day? Chophey <laughs> <laughs> Elo Okay. 25 of Elo is chhofai. <laughs> is chhofe <laughs> a word? Oh. Kud. That's right. Chophei, <laughs> is the word kud. So on the 25th day of Elo, we have a level called Kut. What we don't have on this day is Zeh. We don't have that yet. When are we going to get Zeh? That's the sixth day of creation. On the sixth day, we say zeh This is the level. The level of Zeh is shining on this day. We're not just saying zeh this is the day. You don't need the word Zeh for that. On Rosh Hashanah, we're saying Zeh, which is a level of holiness. That is the substance of Hayoim of the day of Rosh Hashanah. Because on Rosh Hashanah, that's the sixth day of creation. That's the day that Adam HaRishon introduces holiness into the world—a greater holiness, where all of creation accepts God. Godliness is revealed. This is the level of Zeh. Zeh was achieved on the sixth day of creation other merisha now when god creates the world the first day of creation is there holiness in the world someone asked is there holiness in the first day yeah. yes there's holiness yeah. that's right it's not as a reveal it's a level of cause but when you get to the sixth day when other mission yeah. gets into the picture then you reach the level of that is godly revelation when you have this tremendous godly revelation then all of creation are subservient to god they all become nizvat, or they all, they all get nullified before God, because you have this tremendous level of zeth. And this is the purpose of creation. The purpose of creation is to reach the level of ze where you can pinpoint with your finger and say, this is God. Now this tells us something about Rosh Hashanah. And this is also going to tell us something about what a Jew is. Our job is to introduce Zen to the world. And if we have to introduce Zen, that means we have a relationship to Zen. There's something inside us which declares Zen. Now, Rosh Hashanah is a day when we accept God as king, which is the concept of Zen, godly revelation. But accepting God as a king could be done in different ways. One way of accepting God as king is on an emotional level. You can have an emotional experience of love towards God, and I accept him as king. It could be done in an intellectual way. Intellectually, I understand, and I appreciate the greatness of God, and I accept Him. You can have a spiritual experience where your soul uh, gets out of the body, so to speak, and has some so-called godly experience. So there are many ways of accepting the sovereignty of king. But all of these ways that I just mentioned, intellectual, emotion, spiritual, all this has nothing to do with Rosh Hashanah. Because Rosh Hashanah is accepting God beyond all this. Beyond the intellectual, emotional, spiritual experience. You're reaching a higher stage. And it's because you have this higher stage you could point with your finger and say zen. Let's say, for example, a person accepts God because of some intellectual research he went through. And he concluded intellectually, logically, there has to be God and I have to accept it. If you do that, you can't point with your finger and say, that. You know why you can't point with your finger? Because it's true you had an intellectual experience, but it wasn't an emotional experience. It wasn't a spiritual experience, It was just limited to intellectual experience. So you can't point with your finger. When you understand a very deep concept, you can't point with your finger to it. To the table I can point my finger. Down to earth, not to some experience. If I have an emotional experience, it's very emotional, it's not intellectual, it's not tangible, that's not zet. That's kai. All this is kai, such, such as Hashem. I have an intellectual experience, emotional, spiritual. That's all part of God. It's not Zet. The only time you could say Zet is when you experience God in a tangible way, down to earth. Then you could say Zet. This is it. Now what kind of experience are we talking about that you experience God in, in, in a very tangible way? The, way? the way you do this is that when you drink a tea, or you eat this very tasty cake. this is a very special cake. And you should get the recipe, by the way. Okay. So when you drink and you eat, you serve God when you do that. That's that. That you could pinpoint. When you're in the synagogue and you're having some emotional experience, that's not Ze. That. That's kud. So says God. So says your experience. That's not Z. That. Does that means when you point with your finger and you say, you see this cake? I'm serving God with this cake. When I eat it for the right purpose, then I'm serving God. Let's understand this. You see like this, people who have intellectual appreciation to holiness, to godliness to Torah, in their lives distinction exists. Distinction between richness. There are certain mitzvahs that they appreciate and understand deeper, and they get a kick out of it. Certain mitzvahs they really don't understand, and they're not so excited. Someone has an emotional experience. So this person gets emotional by certain mitzvahs, which are emotional. But there are certain mitzvahs which are less emotional. If someone goes through a so-called spiritual experience, then you get very excited when you pray, when you do spiritual activities down to earth, build a sukkah, you don't get excited about that. Okay.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: The only time you could point your finger and say za is when all mitzvahs are treated equally. And that's why it says in the Mishnah in Pirkei Aviz, in the saying of our fathers, the Mishnah says that don't measure mitzvahs, the light ones and the heavy ones don't measure them treat them equally the implication of this is there are distinctions within mitzvahs there are more severe ones stricter ones heavier ones and light ones some are more emotional some are less emotional some you appreciate intellectually some you don't but the Mishnah says don't go through all this judgment you have to how can you do mitzvahs equally the way you do mitzvahs equally is if your life if you incorporate within your life godliness down to earth not by having some experience without having any experience God is part of our lives and that's what Rosh Hashanah is about Rosh Hashanah is incorporating the sovereignty of God godliness into our lives in a very tangible way let's give an example for this to understand this the fact that I'm alive. The fact that I'm living in a physical world, do I need proof for that? Do I have to go through an experience to to, to reach a conclusion? Do I need some type of spiritual experience to conclude, oh, I'm alive? Do I need a spiritual experience to conclude, hey, there's a house there? to God, that means that God is not my reality. If I need the intellectual experience, the emotional, the spiritual, that means down to earth in a tangible way God is not part of my life. I have to do some experience, some experiment to get God into my life but he's not naturally part of my life. As long as he's not naturally part of my life, then I don't have God in my life. And the purpose of Rosh Hashanah is to incorporate godliness into our lives in a tangible way. In a way where that's the reality. Now the way to do that is by as the apostle continues (laughs) through Torah and mitzvahs. When a person learns Torah and you do mitzvahs then godliness can become part of our reality. Not an experience but a level beyond experience, where you reach the level of reality. You don't need the spiritual escape to get to God. You have God down here on earth, the way you breathe and the way you talk and the way you walk, that's where you have Godliness. Now the result of this, learning Torah, doing mitzvahs, is that the neshama, the soul, is exposed more. When we learn Torah, we expose the soul, the neshama. When we do mitzvahs, we refine our body to a higher level. When our soul is more exposed, when our body is more refined, then God becomes our reality. And therefore, when you wake up in the morning and it's cold, it's cool outside, and then someone makes a comment, your child says, Oh, it's cold. Instinctively you say, Yes, God made it cold. Yes. Yes. God made it cold. The wind is blowing and the child says, yes, God made the wind blow. Look what God just did. That's part of our lives. You don't have to have the experience. You don't have to go to synagogue to recognize God. It becomes part of our breath. When a person eats, you're supposed to recognize that God is our reality, that there's a spark of God in him. And when I'm eating, it's the energy of God which will give, which will give me life. So with all due respect to the ingredients and uh, to the one who baked it, but we know that God is the one that gives the, the energy. That's the reality of everything. And this is the message of Rosh Hashanah. The message of Rosh Hashanah is let's have God down to earth. Let God be the king, not just when we're in the synagogue, not just when we have some spiritual experience, but down to earth. And this gets us to Hashgokha Pratis, Divan Providence. Hashgokha Pratis is something that we have to see instinctively. When we... Hashgokha Pratis, Divan Providence. Okay? The fact that God is running the show, that should be our reality. Just to show this in a more extreme way, I had a friend who, uh, whenever there was a discussion of, of... blessings from the Rebbe, miracles from the Rebbe, he never wanted hear it. He would always walk away. I'm not interested, he would say. Why aren't you interested? Because it's obvious. What are you trying to show me from the story? That the Rebbe is at Zadar and he can do a miracle? I know that already. I do not need a story for that. He didn't want to hear any stories. Sometimes when we see the hand of God, we say, wow, this is great. And are supposed to say, wow. But when you get used to it, every turn that you take, you always see the hand of God. Gardness becomes the Z, something which you point in the finger with a finger. Okay, you have a question.
1: Yeah, why does it say "Long live, Reverend King, Mashiach"?
0: <laughs> I don't know what this has to do with our with our class.
1: But king is king, but isn't the king God? Now is Mashiach king also?
0: Well. Uh, In the Torah, one of the mitzvahs we have is to have a king.
1: Yes, so he would be the king. And God
0: is called the king of all kings.
1: So he's a king on earth. He is a king.
0: Well, right now he's in Ghanedin. He's not the king now.
1: But he will be the king. We
0: hope he will. Okay, that explains it. God is called the king of all kings. But you have a king of flesh and blood down on earth. David was a king. Solomon was a king. And Mashiach will be a king flesh and blood. But then you have the king of all the
1: kings. Okay, it's, it's like really an emperor and king, you know. Uh, well, perhaps. But is, there, is, is there a question
0: about
1: the revenue? No, not so much the Rebbe, just Mashiach in, in general, mm-hmm. just the, uh, right. the idea that mm. how many kings? Mm. King is king the king, right? Right, but Mashiach is different, Mashiach is more supposed to be more than that isn't it he's supposed to be a king more than king of flesh
0: and blood was Moses a king no well he was a king in a different format he wasn't the same official king as David but he did have a legal status of a king But
1: I, I, I feel like David has, it's like a human being he has human qualities is like above
0: has, that uh, no Mashiach will be a person of flesh and blood and will be a human being like we are he will have a special neshamah, a very special neshamah, but he's going to be a human being like King David was. Well, a king doesn't need a land. A king needs a nation. So when you have people, a uh, king, so you're the king. Whether you, have a, whether you have a country you don't have a country. You could have a country without a nation and you have nothing. So Moses, in certain ways, he's considered a king. Legally, according to how luckily he has a law of a king. Now, when you have a king, there are many laws. You have to bow bow down to the king. Physically, you bow down. And anyone who goes against the king uh, can can be sentenced to death legally. You know, if you go against there are many laws concerning a king. The king has the right to
1: That's a
0: Torah obligation. You have to have two. And uh, th- there are many details about a king. So the one who had all the laws of a king full blast—that was King David. And then Solomon; those were legally completely kings. Could you
1: Moses bow down? Moses
0: was a king in certain respects. He was a king.
1: Could you bow down to David?
0: Forced to bow down to David. But right. Jews down. You were obligated to bow down. Jews mm-hmm. do bow down. Okay. Yes.
1: Knees. How? On, the knees?
0: On the floor, mm-hmm. all the way.
1: <coughs> On
0: Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, we bow down. We bow down, right, to God, right? Now, the reason we bow down to a king, to King David, for example, is not because King David is God. He's a human being. But since he's a king, and sovereignty below is an expression, is a reflection of sovereignty above, of godliness, so we bow down to King David, and by extension, we're accepting the God of King David, but David is a person of flesh and blood, and we don't treat him as a god. We treat him as a human being who happens to be a king. But
1: you don't to yes,
0: you are allowed to bow down to non-Jewish king. Yes, you are allowed to, and of yes. you're supposed to. When you have a non-Jewish king, you're allowed to, and of you're supposed to bow down to him. There's nothing wrong with bowing down to a king.
1: But Joseph, you
0: don't, don't bow down me. to an idol, and you don't bow down to someone who claims to be a, to be a God. That's why the Talmud says in in the story of Purim, when Haman, when Haman wanted everyone to bow down to him, so it says Mordechai wouldn't bow down. So the Gemara asked, the Talmud asked, why wouldn't he bow down? The answer is because he had an image of an idol. That's why he wouldn't bow down. Otherwise, he would have bowed down to him. Is that why
1: Joseph wouldn't bow to Pharaoh?
0: How do you know he didn't bow down to Pharaoh?
1: I don't know, I saw it someplace. Well, didn't Pharaoh he was god? He was god. Yeah. Well, well, if Pharaoh treated himself
0: as god, then he wouldn't bow down. Yeah.
1: yeah. Pharaoh was supposed to be the living whatever. He didn't he, he was more flesh, he was in wars, and he was good with Abigail, uh, you know, all these things. What about Sheba? Um was she a Going to be like that, or is the machine on a
0: different level. Like the going to be involved in wars and involved in well, some okay. of the things that that King David was. Or it's going uh, to be on, you know, the on a different level. Uh, number one, King David, David Amalek was a big project. Right. And uh, all the things that happened to David and were actually in a higher level than mm-hmm. Theon. Right. So he was a hundred percent son. No mm-hmm. doubt about that.
1: I don't know, but I, even Revan was alive, like Jesus. Mm-hmm. You could stop it. Like none of those situations, God never made those situations like happen. Or He wasn't involved in in, in like the actual physical physicalness of war. He was on a spiritual level How do you know? How do I know? Yes, <laughs> the only thing we, only we know what happened to David. I have the evidence the magazine. Around. Oh well, <laughs> uh, you don't know. They've been on in the magazine. The only, we wouldn't
0: know David had a white beard. He looked like the <laughs> right? And if the Torah wouldn't record things that he did, we wouldn't know. Right. We don't know anything about it. All we know is that the left was a child. God is a child. We don't know what went through his mind. You know? There was a time when the level worked in the Navy. Okay? He was involved in the war. He wasn't shooting, he was involved in the war. I mean, we don't know the story of the level. We know he
1: was a tzadik, Period.
0: But you're imagining David, he had <laughs> weapons. <pills. laughs> Number two, according to the Rambam, according to Maimonides, in order for Mashiach to be Mashiach, he will have to fight the wars of Hashem. Right. Which doesn't mean he personally will be have a God. He might be a general. But he has to fight the wars of Hashem, which is destroying the Malik, destroying the terrorists, and so on. Okay. So he's he going to be in charge of fighting the wars of Hashem. So we, from what I understand, we say that the really fought
1: the words of Hashem through getting people back to Judaism. Well, no, 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 that, that's not an no, right. no. That's not on illegal legal No, no. Right. The
0: Rambam, when he discusses the Mashiach, he says, Mashiach will coerce the Jewish people to follow Torah mitzvah. That's one thing. Second thing, is will fight the wars of Hashem. Now, coercing the Jews to serve God, that you might say the Rambam was doing, or you might say he wasn't, that you could say. But fighting the wars of Hashem, in the simple sense of the Rambam, is the strongest evidence. Now, in a certain ways, the level was fighting the wars of Hashem, trying to influence the governments to fight terrorism and not to give back all the areas. But the, the simple meaning of the Lama is you destroy the terrorists, you destroy the enemies of the Jewish people, and you destroy them all physically. Uh-huh. I have a question on the
1: class? Uh, when they said that, mm-hmm. when they said that, they actually saw Hashem they pointed
0: you see they had it easier than we do because when they said Zen they didn't deserve the Zen it was given to them was thrust down the throat whether you like it or not that's the Zen but what God wants from us is he's not going to give it to us at this point, we deserve it, and we do deserve it, and we have the ability to live our lives in the same zed which they had, but not that it's given as a gift, but we achieve that on our own. Right, right, like you were making a comparison between how and how we live such like hearsay they heard it, then like, we really see it. And you
1: say like our lives, they would really see it, but you know, now you're saying okay, you're giving it more of an... No,
0: no. You see, the accomplishment of the splitting of the sea was greater than the other prophets. The other prophets had a prophetic experience. But in that time, they weren't all prophets. By them, they recognized God down to earth. That was their achievement, Zed Haley. Zed means they didn't have to look up. They could look down, and they could say, Zed, this is God. Where have they turned this door? This was the achievement. The achievement was that they had some spiritual experience. The achievement was they could see it, look at the table, and they recognized the whole table just to serve God. That was, that was what, that was we what they went through. We could have that. And that's what, yes, and this is what Rosh Hashanah is. Rosh Hashanah is not a search for something what we would call spiritual, godly, holy, but this is down to earth Judaism. Well, right, that's Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is Mashiach. The whole point of Rosh Hashanah is That Malkot will be revealed completely when she comes. That's why in all the prayers we keep on saying please reveal your Malkot which means when will it all be revealed completely when Shia comes. Well Rosh Hashanah is the concept of revealing the Malkot of Hashanah. There are different days where the stress is something because you know, us say Pesach it's more dealing with escaping from your limitations.
1: That's another aspect. Oh, yeah. Well,
0: we do that every day, but it's a different way. The difference is when, when you go to the palace of the king and you say, you're my king, that's full blast mouthful. But when I go away from the palace, I'm, I'm distant, I don't see the king, I never saw the king. I recognize the king, I know this. My king is great. That's recognition of the king. But that's outside the palace. The Holy you will after the palace and we say, I know Hashem is our king, but he's far away. But Hashem is when we go into the palace and we say, I
1: see, it. you're my reality. Yes, we do. Well, <coughs> when you we say the word see, there are different ways of seeing. Well, right. Yeah, there are different ways of doing that, right? But the common ground is that God has to be the reality. That's
0: part of what they saw. That was the Zet.
1: No, no, no. We're not
0: pretending. That's the whole point. I'm not pretending. That's the reality. It's our reality. will
1: have.
0: To tears coming down the God. We'll break down in one second. The, the Jew himself won't even realize what it was, right? But that is the reality of a Jew, that is Neshamah, and that is recognition of Hashem. That's seeing Hashem. You don't see Hashem by seeing some angel. That's how you saw Hashem. And the splitting of the sea was not the godly revelation. It was when they were able to look at this and say, I recognize the godliness. That we could also do. And it's really, play, the, the difference is you might not appreciate it that much, but it's the same reality. And is
1: That's right. That's right.
0: That's right. Okay. Everyone should have a ksivu Should not take a b'sutra.